Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 2. As we look this evening at verses 3 through 5. Let us join our hearts together in prayer, asking for God's blessing. Great God of heaven, how blessed, how privileged we are to gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to hear his word preached and proclaimed. Would you bless us now and fill us with your word and spirit and use this poor minister to be the instrument of glorious things, that the, the glory of your grace would be manifest in this service of worship in the conviction and conversion of sinners, and in the sanctification of the saints, that you would be all in all. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we read God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've seen for a few sermons now in Colossians, toward the end of chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2, how Paul is struggling, and that word that he uses there in 129 for struggling, in 2 verse 1 for struggle, we've seen how that is the word agony. Paul has a pastoral agony to set forth all of Christ to all of the church to every individual believer, and to the church as a whole. Paul agonizes for this. He agonizes to set forth all of the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ, how he has all that we need for life and godliness in this age and the age to come. That is something that he sets forth to do with the same kind of tenacity that the athlete has for his temporal endeavors. And we saw why. We've seen why Paul has this agonizing ministry of word, sacrament, and prayer to set forth all of Christ to all the church. We've seen at least three things up to this point. Why does Paul agonize to set forth Christ to the Christian? Chapter 1, verse 28, for their maturity, for the maturity of the believer. That is their in-time maturity, that we would make it all the way to the end, we would make it to the end of the race, and so finally attain to mature adulthood with all of God's people and pass into everlasting bliss and glory and joy in the new heavens and new earth. Secondly, Paul agonizes, we could say, for its own sake. Chapter 2, verse 2. As Paul talks about the people of God in chapter 2, verse 2, reaching all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of of Christ, of God's mystery, which is Christ. Setting forth the fullness of Christ does not need to have, we could say, does not need to have another end, another motive or goal. 
it is good for its own sake. But thirdly, we see that Paul agonizes to set forth the riches, the bottomless and brimless riches of Jesus Christ for the upbuilding of the church. That's also in verse 2 of chapter 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. It is the upbuilding of the saints. It is the encouragement and edification of the saints. It is what buoys the saints in hardship and is what preserves them and enables them to persevere through this earthly pilgrimage to reach our heavenly destination. But as we come to chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, we see another reason. There's yet another reason Paul is telling us, Paul is telling the Colossian church why he has pastoral agony to set forth all of the riches of Christ to all of the church. And we'll see that, that reason, that, that other purpose of pastoral agony in a moment. So as we look at this, at this passage in three points, we'll begin where we ended last week. So we see, first of all, the treasury of Christ for the Christian. The treasury of Christ for the Christian in verse 3. As Paul spoken of God's mystery, which is Christ, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We saw last week how, how Christ is the revealed mystery, and that's going back up to chapter 1, verses 26 and following. And over these, these sermons in which we've talked about what the mystery is, just to, just to summarize it briefly, when Paul talks about how Jesus Christ is the revealed mystery, he says, perhaps clearest, in chapter 1, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul talks about this mystery, which may be unfamiliar to us, but should be familiar to us, that there has been an historical development in God's covenant of grace that what, what, what once was the age of promise is now given way to the age of fulfillment. Back then, what Abraham, Moses, and David enjoyed was in types and shadows, the copies of the heavenly things, a sinful priest occasionally bringing a, an ineffectual in itself sacrifice into the heavenly, excuse me, the earthly tabernacle, but that is now given way to the overabundant fullness of salvation accomplished, actually accomplished in Jesus Christ, who is the sinless high priest, who brings the perfection of his once and for all sacrifice incessantly into the heavenly tabernacle. Do you see how much better it is that Jesus Christ, the fullness has come, chapter 1, verse 19, he is the fullness to which all the relative emptiness of the, of the shadows of the Old Testament pointed. He is the overabundant fulfillment of all these things, and in him we have not the pointing forward to of redemption, not a glimpse of, a foretaste of redemption, we have the actual accomplishment of it. So do you see how privileged you are, how grateful you should be, believer, to be a new covenant believer, to know Jesus Christ who has already come, not one who is yet to come, not one who is humiliated, but one who is exalted, the risen and ascended Christ who has actually accomplished redemption for his people. Our privilege is, is so great 
that the only thing that is yet to be done, the only thing left on the calendar, is the return of Christ. And we won't get into this now, but from one angle we can say that the return of Christ is simply the public manifestation of what we already have in Him now. We walk by faith, not by sight. The salvation that we have invisibly, that the world does not recognize, that the world mocks us for, will be openly manifest and will come into open acquittal. And we will will come into the final judgment, having already passed that final judgment, because Jesus took that judgment for us in our place 2,000 years ago. Our privilege is so great. What Paul is wanting the Colossians, wanting us to see is we need to live out of the great privilege of knowing the ascended Christ. There is nothing that can be added to him because he has done more than all. As we sang in our opening hymn, more than all in him I find. All the eternal heavenly treasures, the the plural form that Paul uses there in verse 3, those are hidden in Jesus Christ, and he has accomplished all that we need for life and godliness in this age and the age to come, and all that we need is hidden in him. We saw last time that when Paul talks about how all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, he's not talking about how those are tucked away for a, for a, a select few, for, for a secret special few. They are hidden in Christ in the sense of nothing can take those things away from Christ or from the believer. Our, our inheritance is laid up for us in heaven, in Christ, where neither moth nor rust can corrupt and where, where a thief cannot break in and steal. Everything we need for life and godliness is deposited in Christ and nowhere else. They are hidden in Him, not hidden elsewhere. They are all deposited in Him to be found literally nowhere else. And we ended last time talking about the the heavenly, the otherworldly blessing that Paul mentions here in verse 3. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These are all the things signified and pointed to in that rich symbol of the tree of life. You can go back and listen to the previous sermon. You can go back and look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Look at the tree of life as it comes up there, pointing to the otherworldly blessing it is to have the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, something that does not come up from this fallen creation, but comes from above. The heavenly blessing that the tree of life points to has been accomplished and is ours in the Lord Jesus. The tree of life that was held out to Adam in the very beginning, how he could go from his lower, changeable life, being in the presence of the evil one and in testing, Adam could go from that lower life to the highest heavenly life with God, free from the presence of the evil one, unchangeable, unlosable heavenly life, and the, and the serpent would have been crushed under his feet. God gave to Adam that testing, that probation period, and had he withstood the temptation of the evil one to eat from the forbidden tree, if Adam had glorified and enjoyed God for his own sake— not listening to the the plausible arguments of the evil one, God would have given Adam the right to eat from the tree of life, that sign and seal of life, of heavenly highest life, such that he and all his posterity would enter into confirmed righteousness and blessedness with God in the heavenly places. And just the, the quick survey of Paul we did last week, how we already have 
are seating with Christ in the heavenly places now. The center of life for the believer is no, no city on earth. We, ha- we have here no abiding city. The center of life for the Christian is in heaven, not in this lower order of things. Ephesians 2.6, we have been already raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. So Paul is emphasizing as he comes to, to a turning point here at the, at, at the end of this section in Colossians from, from verse 3 to verses 4 and 5. He is emphasizing yet again, as he has done so, so often up to this point in the epistle, emphasizing that Jesus Christ, the revealed mystery, the accomplisher of redemption, not the, not the one who points to it, but the one who is redemption in himself, fully accomplished. Christ has taken us already to the ultimate goal held out to Adam in the tree of life. What Adam failed to do, the second and last Adam has done, has done victoriously and has done for all who look to him in faith. He has brought us to the heavenly goal already begun and will be brought to fullness at his return, that heavenly blessed goal of union and communion with the triune God such that he is our blessedness and reward, our treasure and our possession now and forever. Christ has brought us into this ineffably glorious destination. It is ours now and it will be ours in fullness at his blessed return. Christ is the Savior who needs no supplement. He is not the one who has a deficiency that we must add to or provide for. He is the full and self-complete, self-sufficient Savior than whom nothing, no one is greater, and to whom nothing can be added. So as we come to this turning point, to a transition in this section of Colossians, as Paul has opened something of the, the glories of the riches of Jesus Christ for the Christian, as, the, as these Colossians are being tempted to add to Christ to look elsewhere than Christ to find the fullness of spiritual life and blessing. Being told by this Colossian heresy that Christ is great but not enough. Why is Paul telling us all of these things? He's told us a few reasons why, but here he tells us another reason. He is emphasizing all the glories of the riches of the fullness of Jesus Christ in verse 4. And that leads us to our second point, another purpose of the pastor's agony. Another purpose of the pastor's agony, which brings us to verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So another reason Paul is unpacking something of the fullness of the riches of Jesus Christ for his blood-bought church. Why is he doing this? Why is he going to such pains? Why is he going to such agony to unpack for the Christian to tell us what is ours, who Christ is for us, and what he's accomplished for us, as we've seen already in this epistle? Why does Paul set forth on this pastoral agony to unpack Christ to the church? Because Pastor Paul does not want the church to be deceived by clever arguments that draw us away from Christ. Pastor Paul does not want us to be deceived by clever, plausible, but false arguments or attitudes or movements that would draw us away from Christ. Why this 
pastoral agony to set forth the riches of Christ because setting forth the riches of Christ will keep you, Christian, from the temptation of the devil to look elsewhere for the fullness of spiritual life and glory and blessing. It is Christ who will keep the Christian from deception. So as Paul starts out there in verse 4, I say this. We'll say what? Everything you've said up to this point or just a certain section? Not, not clear exactly. But all that Paul has told us, he, he is definitely, it is clear that he is telling us about all the riches of Jesus Christ. He's saying all these things for a particular reason. So what is the this he, is, he perhaps has in mind? Chapter 1, verse 5. The hope laid up for heaven, laid up in heaven for us now. Chapter 1, verse 13. We are part of God's kingdom. Verse 14. We have redemption in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. Verse, verses 15 through 20. How we have this, this Savior who is God of Himself and who is the self-sufficient Savior for His people in whom we have redemption. We have reconciliation in Him by the shedding of His blood. Verse 24 of chapter 1, we have union and communion with him in our sufferings such that he uses our, our earthly sufferings to work in us and to prepare us for heavenly blessing. As we saw earlier, verses 26 and 27, we live, believer, on this side of the empty tomb and the ascension. We live on this side of the fulfillment of all of God's promises. All the types and shadows are more than fulfilled, are abundantly fulfilled, because Jesus Christ overfulfills them in the perfection of, the amazing perfection of his work. And so Paul is, is mentioning these things in verse 4 of chapter 2. I say all this, believer, if you've been nodding off reading this epistle up to this point, Pay attention to why I'm telling you this, Pastor Paul is saying, that what keeps you from deception, as you have been exposed to this Colossian heresy telling you you, that you need to add to Jesus Christ, all that I've told you about Christ will keep you from this demonic deception that Christ is somehow deficient and in need of your supplement and your addition. That is another reason the pastor agonizes to present Christ in all of his fullness so that the sheep do not go astray. Do you remember in Acts 20 when Paul was bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders and he's telling them how he has been diligent to preach the gospel of the kingdom, Acts 20, 25, and that was the setting forth of the whole counsel of God, verse 27, and he's doing this in part not just for its own sake, although it is good for its own sake to unpack the riches of Christ to the Christian and to the church. He is doing this in Acts 20, he mentions another reason, because the wolves will come in and will try to take the sheep away from the under-shepherds. So the under-shepherds must be all the more diligent to set forth Christ to the sheep, that our ministry would be the, the voice of the shepherd speaking through us by his word and spirit so that the sheep would hear his voice and follow him and not a hired hand and, and no one else. That is why the pastor agonizes to set forth Jesus Christ in all of his fullness as the accomplisher of redemption and by his spirit the applier of redemption so that the sheep don't go elsewhere for what they need for life and godliness, whether this age or the age to come. 
that they would instead go to him and him alone as the, to put it crassly, the one-stop shop for all that they need for justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, all of earthly life in union with the heavenly man, Jesus Christ. Notice how in verse 4, how, how inclusive, how universal Paul is there in verse 4, how he says, I say this in order that for the purpose that no one may delude you. No one may delude you, plural, the church. Not that the, the Christian has to, has to climb levels of getting less and less susceptible to false teaching. It's not that the Christian is at conversion not susceptible to some false teaching, but susceptible to other false teaching. It's that the Christian, whether young or old, new believer or seasoned saint, the, the Christian has all he or she needs in Jesus Christ not to be deceived, to stay on the straight and narrow, to stay in communion with Jesus Christ so as not to be distracted from Jesus Christ. The you there in verse 4 is inclusive of all believers. All believers have all they need in Jesus Christ for all of life and godliness, not to be deceived. But also, the, the inclusive language in verse 4 there, prior to the you, I say this in order that no one may delude you with, with plausible arguments. No one. Not the half-baked, atheistic kind of arguments that you find from the new atheism or the, the, the lower level kind of arguments in chat rooms that are just easy to demolish. Not the high level continental philosophy that, that is too difficult for, for anyone to read. All levels of antichrist teaching, all kinds of antichrist movement, all that would vie for your heart and mind that is not Jesus Christ, that would distract you from Jesus Christ, what you have believer in Jesus Christ is so powerful that no one can deceive you from him if you stay close to him and abide in him. Not the highest academic arguments that the world can throw at us. We may not understand them. We may need to, to parse them out together. But there is nothing the devil can throw at the Christian that can take the Christian from Christ. I say this, Paul, Paul says here, so that no one, no one in the world, no one who serves the evil one will take you, believer, from Christ. Because what you have, believer, in Christ is enough to keep you now and forever. You will be kept free from deception, from falsehood, from plausible, specious, sounds good but isn't good kind of arguments and presentations of lies. All you have in the fullness of Jesus Christ is enough to keep all who are in Jesus Christ from being deceived from him and distracted from him. That is what we see here in verse 4. There is, once you see the, the fullness, something, when you open up that treasure chest and you see something of its, of its depth and breadth and its glory, when you see the, the self-sufficiency, the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ, there will be no temptation to add to him, to go elsewhere than him for all of life and for all of godliness. No antichrist argument, movement, relationship 
will be able to deceive any true believer who is resting upon and receiving all of Christ and abiding in him. What Paul is mentioning there at the end of verse 4, not being deluded with, with plausible arguments, presentations of, of, what, of what would claim to be true that, sound, that sounds good, it's plausible, but it's actually false. Think of how this is exactly what the evil one did in the beginning as he tempted Eve. What the kind of plausible argument that the evil one gave to Eve as he, as he tempted Eve and, and convinced Eve to think about how God was holding back from, from her and, and her husband, leading her to question God's veracity, his, his truthfulness. Did God really say this? Is it really true, Eve, that you, that you will die when you eat of this tree? Are you sure about that? Also making her to question God's goodness. All, all, the, all these trees, and, and he says no to this one? Isn't that random? Isn't that baseless to say, not these? What's different about this one from the others? Doesn't God care about you, Eve? Doesn't God love you, Eve? Doesn't he want you to, to live your best life? Isn't God holding out on you? Think of the, the nature of that argument. Think of the, the core of that argument, this plausible argument in terms of what Paul is saying here in verse 4, that Satan got Eve to think about her happiness apart from God. He got her to think about herself independent of, God, of the triune God. Eve, what about you, though? Yes, God has said some things, and this, this Edenic provision is great. It's a glorious place, but what about you? What do you want? He got her to, th- to think about transgressing God's covenant. He got her to think about bringing dishonor to infinite majesty. He got her to think about finding happiness apart from the, one, the only one who can give happiness because he got her to think about herself and not about the one true God. That was his plausible argument in the beginning. What about your happiness? And one way Paul is helping us to, to, to see the, the, the arguments that would distract us from Christ, the, the plausible arguments that would make us think about adding to Christ, the way Paul helps us to be false teacher proof is to take our eyes off of our happiness and to see ourselves in relation to God who is our blessedness and reward, such that our happiness is found in Him, not in ourselves. Such that our happiness is found in serving Him, not in serving ourselves. Such that our happiness is found in holiness, not in selfishness. Making us see, in other words, that our chief end is to glorify and enjoy God fully forever. The plausibility of all kinds of arguments, what they all have in common, whether it's what the evil one said in the beginning or whatever form, the seemingly infinite forms that unbelieving thought takes, they all have in common that they want you to think about you and what makes you happy and severing your happiness and your your existence apart from the God in whom we have all holy happiness now and forever. Don't don't give in. Don't be deluded by the plausible arguments that you need to seek happiness apart from the glorious and adorable triune God, as our, as our divines used to speak of him. So we see thirdly, coming to our third and final point, 
Paul switches gears a bit to, to talk about how he is rejoicing in the believer's sincere faith. Rejoicing in the believer's sincere faith. And this is verse 5. Let's look again at verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So what's the connection here to to what has been said up to this point? Well, he's emphasizing, again, something of another reason that, that he's been setting forth something of the fullness of Christ to the Christian in this letter. He is not present He's not with the Colossians to help them deal with this Colossian heresy. This Colossian heresy that says Christ is great, but he's not enough. You must supplement him with the teaching of the age and with the old covenant ceremonial laws. It would be nice to have Pastor Paul there, learned and and gifted as he was, to just fix this problem, to just fix it once and for all and speak to these Colossian heretics and, and prove them wrong in debate. But he's not there. He is, in, he is in house arrest. He's imprisoned in Rome. All the more reason, I would argue, that in the weakness of the Colossian church being exposed to this threat of, of heresy and unbelief, all the more reason that it, is, that it is not seen in any man helping the church, but that it is Christ who preserves the church. It is Christ helping the church, filling her with his word and spirit, and keeping her from deception by his almighty power. Paul is not with the Colossians, but he is with them in a sense through his writing and with us um, today in his inerrant word revelation as an organ of God's word revelation. Now what Paul says here about his absence, that's obvious. He's he's in prison in Rome, not in, in Colossae. But what is the nature of Paul's presence with the church? He says, I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit. Is he with them in in thoughts and prayers, which is, is helpful, I suppose, when, when people say, hey, I'm, we're, we're pulling for you, you know, thoughts and prayers. Thanks, I guess. Uh, this doesn't, doesn't do very much, better than nothing, perhaps. Is Paul talking about how he is with them in the Holy Spirit? But that might bring up some sort of sci-fi going back and forth between Rome and, and Turkey kind of idea. This one's not as easy to, to decide on. But what is clear is that Paul is with the people of God as a member of the people of God because union with Jesus Christ means union with each other as well. Keep your finger here in Colossians and take with me your, your hymnals. Let's look at the Confession of Faith Chapter 26, this is on page 864. Page 864, as we look at chapter 26, top of the page there, our confession of faith on the communion of saints, paragraph 1. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. 
So this being a summary of, this, of the biblical teaching of the communion of saints we see evidenced here and throughout Scripture, that as Paul, whatever else he means, that he is, that he is with them in spirit, whether, whether pulling for them um, as, they, as they face this false teaching, whether he is with them in some sense in, in the Holy Spirit as we have communion with each other in Christ by the Holy Spirit, what we see here communicated in chapter 1 of chapter 26, paragraph 1 of the Confession, is that Paul wants the people of God to stand up to this false teaching, and he's going to help them do so. Because union with Christ means union with each other. We help each other. We are not isolated individuals. We are not atomistically related, independent of one another. We are a body, and a body helps itself to function in a healthy way. So Paul, as pastor, wants the people of God that he's never even met yet, these Colossian believers. He wants them to stand up, to be firm in the faith, and to open their eyes to see something of the glories of Jesus Christ so they won't be taken captive by by plausible arguments and false teaching. But more than that, more than, than Paul helping them through this letter, perhaps he's also praying for them as he's in in prison. More than that, he rejoices in something, in two things in verse 5, last half of verse 5, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, this was cool for me to find out this week. In verse 5, this word that Paul uses for good order, it is used also in the New Testament by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14.40. Remember in 1 Corinthians 14, how Paul is dealing with issues of public worship, how in the foundation-laying phase of the, of the church, when, when word revelation, when, when new word revelation from God was still in effect prior to the closing of Scripture and the cessation of special revelation, how there, there had to be order as there would be tongues and prophecies and things that came up in public worship. So Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians 14 to talk about all those things, and you can, you can look at Pastor Rick Williams' sermon on these sign gifts from a few months ago. As he ends chapter 14, he talks about how everything must be done decently and in good order. There must be order, there must be orderliness, proper procedure for the people of God. So I think a case can be made here then that as Paul talks about right order in public worship in 1 Corinthians— Here in Colossians, he is rejoicing to see the good order of of the Colossian church, their good order of gathering for public worship. These young Colossian believers, perhaps unable to hang with the, the apparent and outward sophistication of this Colossian false teaching, not familiar with the, with the words or the, the phrases they might use that the Colossian heretics might throw out as they might have been familiar with pagan philosophy. These young believers, this young church, is false teacher-proof in part because they have the good order, they have the discipline to gather for public worship. They go to church. That's what helps them become false teacher-proof and avoid deception. They go to church. They, and Paul hears about this from Epaphras. Yes, the, Epaphras may have said something to the effect of this Colossian heresy is on the rise. We're, we're praying through it. We're, we're trying to answer it specifically according to the terms that the false teaching comes up in. 
But Paul, these believers, they're, they're young, but they're sincere. They gather for worship. They come to hear the word preached. They, they pray together. They, they receive the, the sacraments. They gather for worship. And Paul rejoices, writing in this letter, telling them he rejoices to hear about this. This b- believer is what helps you avoid deception, to gather together with all of God's people for public worship. But he also rejoices there in verse 5 to see the firmness of their faith in Christ, the firmness of their faith. Again, these are not, these are not well-trained, perhaps, not, not necessarily educated believers with PhDs or seminary degrees, but they are sincere believers. They may not be expert apologists knowing about all the arguments to, to give back to the, the presentation of unbelief, but they know Christ. They have a sincere, steadfast trust in Christ. And that word, that, that preposition at the end of, toward the end of verse 5, your faith in Christ, we could say faith into Christ, a very tight relational kind of preposition, your faith is in Christ. Paul's not saying, I'm glad to see that you're people of faith, that you have warm, gooey feelings about the afterlife or about faith and morals. He is talking about how he rejoices to see the firmness of their faith in an object, in the object who is Jesus Christ. They may be young, they may be untrained and uneducated, but they are sincere because they sincerely look to the fullness of spiritual life and blessing that is in Jesus Christ. He is the object of their faith. So it's true trust, even if young, even if, if it needs to be taught more, but it is sincere trust in the Lord Jesus that these Colossian believers have, that you have believer, and that is what keeps you from being deceived. So keep trusting, keep walking, keep gathering together for worship, and that will keep you from being deceived. So it's those two things as we close, the two things we see from this passage, how we avoid deception by resting upon and receiving the resurrected and ascended Christ and gathering for public worship. Really, we came to church to hear about how we need to come to church Yes, you did. And you're welcome. (laughs) Because in day-to-day life, resting upon and receiving the the Christ who is not yet to come, but who has come, who has accomplished redemption, and knowing him as the revealed mystery and the accomplisher of redemption, and gathering with all those who also know him, being united to him, and because of that, united to each other, that is God's means as we gather together Lord's Day after Lord's Day, morning and evening, to hear the voice of our shepherd speaking through his ambassador by his word and spirit, as we gather together on the first day of the week, because that, that's when our Savior was raised from the dead, and, and that, that resurrection event was the turning of the ages, and we now taste and see, have a preview of glory, we saw there in chapter 1, verse 27, we have in Jesus a foretaste of the fullness of glory that will be ours when he returns. And so it is knowing Christ and gathering with the people of Christ to worship Christ that will keep us from all the wiles of the evil one and will enable us to put one foot in front of the other to make it eventually all the way to glory. It's so simple. So let's use it, people of God. 
and may God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word.